Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Yes, it is. It is cold out there. And it is still winter, lovely, dark, and deep winter. So come in. Good grief, you need not fear me. Unscarf, decloak, strip mittens, grab a beverage and a snack. We have leftover Christmas ham, some excellent fresh-baked whole-grain bread, and a plethora of mustards, all the way from drawing room sweet and creamy to ballpark pungent. And we have a grand and a simple show for you tonight. Welcome, by the way. Welcome to the District of Wonders. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. And finally, welcome to The Nook. My name is Lawrence Santoro. And tonight, ah, tonight will be a Chicago night in honor of this possibly being our last Christmas, our last New Year's in Chicago. But... Before going farther, I want to take some time to properly thank Ms. Cher Eves. Cher has been the co-editor of Tales to Terrify, and for the last year or more, she's been an invaluable partner in making this little endeavor come about. I will say she is of major importance in assembling this weekly gathering. She is the person who reads the tales that come to us at tales to terrify at gmail.com. She also solicits some of the stories from some of our writers. 
It is she who recommends readers for the tales we finally choose. It is she who frequently drops a question or two into the show's Facebook page just to keep things upstirred and interesting. She organizes our story spreadsheet that shows, at a glance, what we've done, what we're about to do, what needs doing, and who is doing what for whom and when. As I've mentioned before, Cher also keeps me on track. Yes, I wander, I put off, avoid doing, dodge, stall, evade, prevaricate at all. In any event, I wanted to take a little time at the top of tonight's show, this time between Christmas and the New Year, to thank her for all she's done and all she continues to do. All that being said, Cher plans to leave us soon, and Tony and I are in active pursuit of a replacement for her. So, if you are interested, if you love horror and horror writing, if you know how to talk to writers and narrators, are far more organized than I am and have a computer and skills, and a big one this, if you have the time to handle the job, let us know. Drop us a note at tales to terrify at gmail.com and put co-editor in the subject line. Again, Cher, thanks for all you've done and for all you continue to do. And Happy New Year to you and to your family. And now, fiction. We have a most excellent tale for you tonight. The tale is The Ambiguities and was written by Richard Schwedick. Rich is a fellow Chicagoan well, he's the Chicagoan. I've only been here 30 years or so. But I've known Rich for about 20 of those years. He and I were part of a group called Twilight Tales. I've mentioned Twilight Tales many, many times. So I'll not burden you with more Twilight Tales tales. Rich Schwedick's first published story was Getting Along with Larga which became the first winner of the Illinois Science Fiction in Chicago Writers' Contest in 1986. He won the contest again in 1988 with his story, A Man Makes a Machine, which, when it was published by Amazing Stories in November of 1990, became his first professional sale. So here, for your ears' scrutiny, is Richard Schwedick's The Ambiguities. Most of the decisions we make in life are regrettable, but we make them because we would regret the alternatives even more. That's been the story of my life since I was a little girl, under the careful, watchful eyes of parents, who encouraged me to make my own decisions, but held their arms out to catch me when I fell. An enormous winter storm front moved into the Midwest. The temperature dropped. The winds brought sheets of rain, which became sleet where it didn't become freezing rain, which then became snow. Heavy, slushy snow. It may not be the worst weather in which to travel, and Midwesterners like to take it in stride. I was born in California, but I pride myself on my Midwest heritage. I had a flight to catch at O'Hare and lived in Madison at the time. The Dane County Airport was closed, 
and by the time I'd taken a Badger bus to Mitchell Field in Milwaukee, that airport was closed too. Any sensible person, I suppose, would have known she was licked and waited out the storm. I had an interview for a teaching position in Santa Monica, my birthplace, a tenured position. The prospect of becoming a tenured faculty member awoke the reckless part of my nature. Go for broke, shouted a little voice in my head. Show them that there's no bad weather on earth that can stop you. The airline rep at Mitchell confirmed there were no planes flying out. They'd made quickie arrangements with Greyhound to get passengers to Chicago to make connecting flights. The rep handed me a voucher and directed me to a shuttle downtown to the Greyhound terminal. The rep was a polite young man, already balding, with shiny skin as if he polished it. Good luck, Miss Ulazek, he said, and added, If I were you, though, I... Is it urgent? I smiled at him, touched by his concern. In the Midwest, during bad weather, anyone who shows more than primordial instincts for self-survival is rare. I thanked him and ran for the shuttle. I knew what I was in for when I boarded the Greyhound downtown. As a student, economic necessity often dictated my travel on the transport of last resort. Over the years, I had been proposed to three times by recently released convicts, and propositioned as often, and as often by the same person who proposed, and once by a PFC on his way to Fort Drum. Various fellow travelers have attempted to convert me to a panoply of cults and faiths. Miss, I see you are searching for divine forgiveness. Ma'am, I can tell you are one of the Lord's lost children. Missy, do you know that Satan's got your own immortal soul in his hand right this very minute? I had been offered friendly swigs from half pints and for negotiable price. Everything for sale, from tea cozies to mojo hands, and even a refrigerator. All you gotta do is pick it up when we get to Memphis. Once, I rode 300 miles sitting next to an obsessive-compulsive who laughed and sucked his teeth simultaneously while wiping his fingers with a dirty paper napkin. There were other buses. The Badger line can be very comfortable. The Van Galder buses are as far removed from Greyhound as Harvard is from a vocational tech school. Greyhound, on the other hand, has always been the other hand, or the other shoe waiting to drop from infinity into the abyss. I knew what I was in for, but boarded anyway, wondering whether I was mistaking my determination for desperation. I wanted tenure. I wanted a morsel of security and health insurance. I was fast approaching 40 at that time, and though I had my byline on a handful of novels, sundry stories, and poetry, my poverty was only matched by my obscurity. And if obscurity was to be my lot, at least it might be a comfortable one. For the trip out, to gauge my despair, I took along my copy of Melville's Pierre. As with most books that accompany me on my travels, I never got past the first chapter. I heard his voice before I saw him, a powerful baritone that hummed through every shim, panel, and screw of the bus, as if aided by a powerful amplifier, but all his own, from a diaphragm as deep as Carlsbad Caverns and as wide as Bryce Canyon. Hey, Blondie, over here! He could have drowned out the voice of an opera singer, a street vendor, a carnival barker. It was the voice of a mountain. Hey, Blondie! The voice was calling to me. The other passengers were sitting all bundled up like wards being sheltered from the frost, which seemed appropriate considering the weather. But as I looked more closely at them, I could tell something else was the matter. 
They looked less huddled in their coats than huddled in fear. Extravagant, outlandish writers will tell you that you can smell fear at times. They're right. Fear has an odor like damp wool mixed with olive oil. The bus reeked of it. Older folks sat in the front. A trio of Hispanic men, perhaps seasonal laborers, long past their season, sat further back. African-American women, each with two or three toddlers in tow, sat right behind them. On the other side, a young undergraduate with a wispy, Trotsky-esque beard and a backpack in his lap held a book in his gloved hands. A heavy-set girl with exquisite porcelain skin and way too much makeup sat looking straight forward, silent, a little hunched in her seat. Way in the back were the recently released young men of all races, shapes, and sizes, in denim and old leather jackets, far too flimsy for the winter weather, bulging muscles under every sort of tattoo. Even they looked too intimidated to move make smart-ass remarks, or play cards while passing a bottle around. Fear tinted all of them, except for the man calling out, Hey, Blondie, and looking at me. At first I thought it was some sort of perspectival illusion, a man who looked twice the size of anyone else, twice the girth, a full-grown linebacker sitting in a doll-sized miniature Greyhound bus. But the bus wasn't a miniature. The man was from Rob Dingnag, the man was gargantua. Please take your seat, said the driver. He had a smooth, unworried forehead, light gray eyes, and neatly trimmed white hair. He kept looking through his windshield. My airline. I waved the voucher, hoping to get him to turn and look at me. Or at least the voucher. I know. He broke the last word out into two uneven syllables. Please take your seat. You're heading for O'Hare, aren't you? We're heading for the Greyhound Terminal in Chicago. But I'll... It was my misunderstanding. For some reason, I thought the airline rep said the bus would stop at the airport terminal. I'd have to take a cab or a train to the airport, adding another hour to my trip. Maybe, I thought, they could get me on a later flight. Madness, of course, with two airports closed. Thousands would be clamoring to get on any available flight. Have I been thinking... Ma'am, you'll never get anywhere if you don't. Please, take your seat. He looked out his windshield as if all he could see was the hundred miles of ice-covered highway ahead. Sorry, I said. The bus was packed. The sole vacant seat was the one next to Gargantua, who gave it a couple of pats with the hand only slightly smaller than the seat itself. See? Saved it for you. Only the gods prepare such seating arrangements, I thought for those to be tested, or those already doomed. I could have turned around and scrambled off that bus, or motor coach, as the people in the business prefer them to be called. Any other woman in my situation would have done just that, and any other woman hearing about it would not, could not, blame me had I turned and ran. No conference, no job interview, is worth such a risk. A simple call would have rescheduled the interview. Had I been standing in front of my class at the all-girls Catholic high school where I taught, I would have counseled them. Never, 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 you must err on the side of caution. The voice in my head that had been shouting, Go for broke, with all the misdirected enthusiasm of a cheerleader, was now being drowned out by another voice, with equal energy, screaming, Get out of there. And the voice that was not in my head said, Come on, Blondie, what's the matter? 
I remembered a line from a film, one that my father worked on back when he was in the business. My parents were movie people, and I was a child of the film generation. A character said, If the only bus that's leaving is going to hell, take it and worry about the transfer later. It didn't matter how many times Dad reminded me that movies were a very bad place to get advice, or that the character who spoke those lines was blown to pieces in the next reel. My suitcase was already in the luggage hold. Go for broke, one, and I walked to my seat as if walking to the electric chair. The other passengers stared forward, except for the girl with too much makeup, who sneered at me as if it would be my fault when the police investigation of my untimely demise kept her from getting to Freeport by tonight. Then again, I tried to think positively. I may only be robbed, or molested, or permanently crippled. Gargantua, as I approached him, not only looked bigger, but crazier. His head brushed the bottom of the overhead luggage shelf. One limb, like the branch of an oak, spilled out over the armrest as he beckoned to me. His oily black hair hung to his shoulders, out from under a woolen watch cap, stretched to its limit. The jacket he wore was kind of a Frankenstein creation, as if it had been sewn together from several other garments, one of which seemed to have been made from matted goat fur. His skin was copper-colored, and his features, as one might guess, were exaggerated. High cheekbones, deep, sardonic smile lines, forehead the size and shape of a prison wall, a long, flattened-down nose, thick black eyebrows, a chin like a building cornerstone, and his eyes, pupils and retinas indistinguishable, dark as the moment before the universe was born. As I sat down, he inquired, Hey, so what do they call you? Four eyes? Goggles? He pointed to my glasses. You gotta wear those all the time? Only when I want to see, I said softly, and took off my gloves. Hey, see? He called out to the other passengers. She talks to me. I am real. He looked down at me. Down was the only way he could see me, and said, These people are pretending I'm not here. They won't talk to me. Can you believe that? Like I'm a hard guy to miss. Not that I had a reply, but he didn't wait for one. What you got, a book? Along with my purse and a slim portfolio, almost new, used only for interviews, was my copy of Pierre or The Ambiguities. Dirty book? He smiled as he pulled the paper back from my hand. Not explicitly, I said. What does that mean? Explicit means... No, he pointed to a word on the cover. This one. Ambiguities. It means that it's hard to say if something is good or bad, something that's both at the same time. Hard to pin down. Yeah, I'm hard to pin down too. I doubted that anyone could pin him down with less than a mortar shell. Still grinning, he looked at the cover of Pierre. It was the edition with the Milton Glaser cover, done in pen and ink with subdued washes a sequence of drawings of the same face growing progressively darker in tone and mood, from innocence to bleak fatalism, in nine panels. Like I was telling Red over there, he gestured to the woman in the seat in front of him. She was slunk down, head against the window, wrapped in her dark blue coat and gray wool scarf. Her hair tucked under her collar was thick and long, strikingly vermilion. Just telling her, like, who knows what's going to happen, right? Like this bus might have an accident and we all get killed. Or maybe I turn out to be the guy who saves her life. Like everything's so ambiguous, you know? 
I turned my head sharply. First he asks me the meaning of ambiguities, then he uses the term adjectively. He was playing with me, or something. It was too much to hope that Gargantua would really be like Rabelais' creation, a giant who may have lived by the motto, Do what thou wouldst, but was guided by a kind of natural honor and wit. Then again, wherever Gargantua journeyed, good and bad alike were crushed underfoot. His hands were dirty and calloused. His knuckles had what looked like an extra layer of hard shell around them, with a number of deep, long-heeled scars, not the hands of a creature guided by any natural honor or wit. The bus had started, moved out of the terminal and into the downtown streets through the heavy mix of snow and sleet. I could only glimpse the weather through the windows on the other side of the bus. You could not look around Gargantua any more than you could look around Mount McKinley. He fanned the pages of Pierre as he gave me a careful inspection. You're breathing real hard, Gargantua said, and I was. Your heart is going real fast, too, I can tell. To be precise, like a jackhammer. You're afraid of me, aren't you? He said. Hell yes. I don't know why I said it that way, but once the words were out, I couldn't make revisions. Ha! Ha! His laughter caused ear damage. I imagined every person on the bus hating me for just making him laugh. It vibrated the floor so that I could feel it even through the heavy soles of my boots. Some kinds of laughter help to relieve anxiety. Other kinds only increase it. The guys who laugh the most are often the guys who turn the quickest. Hell yes! That's good. I like that. Everyone else is scared shitless of me, but you're the only one who'll say so. He stared over the seat in front of him, at Red, motionless, staring out the window as if praying for Armageddon. Hey, Red, you could learn a thing from Blondie here. He smiled back at me. You're all right, you know that? There's a very famous gargoyle I saw once upon one of the towers of the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Gargantua had the same smile, that of a hungry demon contemplating dinner. Too bad you gotta wear those glasses. Ever try contacts? I can't wear them, I said. Too bad. You could be a knockout. Hey! He lowered his voice to the level of a restrained foghorn. You, like, never worked in the trade, did you? What trade? I asked. He smiled as if he thought this a clever answer. Forget it. Just, you know, you could. Nothing sleazy, I didn't mean. I still don't know... Forget it. I know a lot of, you know, ladies in the trade. That's what I meant. Outside, the streets had glazed over with slush and ice. At every intersection, cars and vans skidded and wobbled past the white pedestrian lines, where the lines were even visible, and conducted a series of neatly choreographed near misses. But our bus moved along, slowly and reliably. So, what do you do? he asked. I'm a writer and I teach. What, you mean like books and shit? Like books and shit, yes. He chuckled, holding my copy of Pierre in his hand as if he were weighing it. You make a lot of money at it? If I did, do you think I'd be riding this bus? Ha! <laughs> ha! As he laughed, I could smell the fear on the bus growing stronger and sharper. So if you don't make money, why do you do it? He opened the book to a random page and stared at the long, dense paragraphs of Melville's text. It's the only trade I'm good at. You do what you're good at, don't you? He grinned. What I'm good at is scaring the shit out of people. 
If I need to, I can mess them up. But when you look like me, that don't happen much. The book flapped shut. He turned it over and stared at the blurbs on the back cover. Books can't teach you anything. I know. So why do you read them? I like books. Some people write, and some people read. Just like some people talk, and some people listen. He shifted the book to his left hand, and held out the other. My name's Billy Elkrider. That's a beautiful name. I held out my hand. My name's Catherine. It was like shaking hands with a bag of bricks. That's what they call you? Your friends call you that? My friends call me Kath. Am I your friend? I wouldn't want you for an enemy. You got that right, he laughed. You're all right. By now we had made it out onto I-94. The few vehicles that dared sharing the road with us trudged along, leaving a trail in the inch of snow on the pavement. No one traveled at more than 40 miles per hour, and it seemed the height of recklessness to go even at that speed. I would never make my flight, or the flight after that, or even the flight after that. Billy Elkrider stared at me, still smiling. I tried to look back, but it was too much. There was something off-center about his gaze. Not cross-eyed, more like he was trying to stare at two different things at once. I'd seen the same expression on recognized geniuses and complete idiots. I've been told that sociopaths can stare at you the same way. I know everything about you. He smiled. One part genius, one part imbecile, and one part serial killer. You don't believe me. I don't disbelieve you. My uncle was an Ojibwe shaman. He told me I had inner vision, and I could see people's souls. I can read you like a book. He tapped my copy of Pierre in his open palm, as if books were that easy to read. Your uncle sounds like a wise man, I said. He was a drunk. Killed himself in a car. He was drunk and he ran into a tree. I'm sorry to hear that. Billy Elkrider shrugged. He's got nothing to worry about. He did what he was good at. Being a shaman. Being a drunk. He bent his head down and glanced through the window. I'm not bad at being a drunk, too, but what I do mostly... He held out his fingers, fingers the size of blackjacks, and counted his occupations. I've been a bouncer. I've been protection. I ran machinery and hauled stuff in Alaska for a while. I worked in Vegas. I had a job once washing bodies for an undertaker. I'd done collection, too. You know about that? Debts, you mean? You got it. But I work in the trade, mostly. I sort of keep things honest, if you know what I mean. I shook my head. Like... One time I go see a pimp. Everybody called him Joe Bazooka. I don't know how he got that name. Maybe he liked bubblegum. Maybe he had a bazooka. Maybe his real name sounded like bazooka. You know, Buzika or something. So I go see him at the sleazy bar. One of the girls says he roughed her up. Kept more than his cut. The girls got friends, so they get me to talk to him. Talk to him? Yeah. You know to square things out. So he sees me coming, and he freaks out. Takes out this knife. Well, you can't discuss nothing with a guy who's holding a knife, so I made him get rid of it before someone gets hurt. That's when his hand gets stuck under the jukebox. Jukebox? Yeah, a jukebox kind of, you know, tipped over on his hand. He held out his own hand and chuckled. You ever seen those cartoons where the guy hits his hand with a hammer and it swells up like a balloon? That's what it looked like. Broke every bone. 
He bent his head to look out the window, then turned back to me. So he's going all pale and fainting and shit. I take him to the hospital, but you know what? He ain't got a fucking cent. You know? That don't reflect well on a pimp. Who's got no money? Not even bus fare. I'm not about to use any of my money. Even what I, uh, retrieved from him, you know. That extra cut he took from the girl. The hospital's about six blocks away. So I walk Joe over to the hospital. Heh, <laughs> I ain't gonna carry him. But he keeps fainting and shit, falling down. His eyes roll up in his head, and he's dribbling from his mouth, and he keeps trying to get away from me because I'm telling him, Hey Joe, see what happens to a guy who's always doing stupid things like slapping chicks around and pulling knives? Here I am trying to help the jerk, and he runs away. I think that's when his ankle got broke. He wiped his palm on his dirty black denims. So what do you think? We get to the hospital and the cops arrest me. How about that? that a lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That's what happens when you try and do a good deed. I done stuff I ain't proud of, you know, but it's always the little shit you get busted for. Billy looked through the window again, taking in the vehicles plodding along under the diagonal volley of snow and freezing rain. His silence only heightened the sound of the bus engine, the muffled hiss and slosh of tires on the highway. The weather sucks, but it's just good to be moving, you know? I like to keep moving. How? I started to ask, but thought better of it. What? That jukebox. How did it tip over? You think I got a chance? Billy pointed to Red with his thumb. Like if I asked to buy her a cup of coffee, you think? I looked at Red, cowering. Billy was tall enough to lean forward just a little bit over the top of her coach seat and whisper in her ear. That moment has passed, I said. I come on kind of strong, don't I? Kind of. Too bad. He shrugged and opened my book again. For a minute, you know, I felt like we could have had something, you know? I shrugged. Something about redheads, you know? I go crazy for redheads. Many men do. My chick was a redhead. Her name was Lucy, too, like Lucille Ball. I nodded, purse and portfolio square on my lap, hands on top of them. He was going to tell me the story, and there was nothing I could do to stop him. Her working name was Natasha, but she was really Lucy. He scratched his chin. We weren't just good, we were real good together. She was built, like the chick in the Red Sonia movie. You know the one I mean? Big, good shape, killer tits. 
He laughed and drummed on the book cover. We were really good. You could have made movies with us, you know? But she got in with this other guy. They wanted their hands on a little uh, investment I had, and they were going to turn me over to the cops. The bus hit a bump. I gripped the armrests, and my portfolio slipped to the floor. He stared at the cover of Pierre, at the faces growing darker and darker. I waited for the right time, when we were alone in her place. I wanted to get it on one last time, and then after, we were just sitting there. He looked up as if he'd heard something, and smiled. And I clipped her. Oh, I said. You know what that is, don't you? Not the vaguest idea. Here. Billy shifted the book to his left hand and made a fist with his right. He turned in his seat, as much as he could, and placed his fist directly under my chin. You know what an uppercut is in boxing? It's like that, except you aim right for the tip. Here. His second knuckle touched my chin, nudging my head up. Gotta be fast, and you gotta hit it just right. Knocks all the air out of their brain. Bing. Dreamland. Pimps like the clip. When you do it right, it don't leave marks. Do it wrong, and you can break their nose, their neck, especially when they know it's coming and tense up. He placed his fist under my nose. It smelled like grease, dirt, and old dollar bills. He could have used some soap under his fingernails. You did that to her, I said. Billy nodded. To your girlfriend? He nodded and smiled like he enjoyed watching me shudder. You clipped her. That was just to keep her quiet. I poured a couple of half pints of Old Forester down her. The hard part is the first few gulps. She never had trouble swallowing once you got her started. I picked up my portfolio from the floor and rubbed the slush and dirt from it with my glove. I felt he was watching my hands, see them shaking. I took her over to the Longshoreman's Hall after that, down by the harbor. They took care of the rest. They. He made a sort of gesture holding out his open hand. People say revenge is sweet. It ain't. But it does feel good. It's like satisfaction, you know? Why? I asked. Why what? Why would you do that? Billy smiled, like I was asking him a rookie's question. It's nothing compared to what happened to him. I stared straight ahead, not moving a muscle. As much as I wanted to know how close we were to Chicago, I moved nothing but my eyes, trying to spot something familiar through one of the windows. We got another 30, maybe 40 miles, Billy said. Thanks, I cleared my throat. Think I'm a monster, don't you? I nodded as if I might set off a bomb if I moved too quickly. You dated a few monsters in your time, huh? You look like you know what I'm talking about. Billy, I said with a voice I use on certain kinds of problem students. A monster wouldn't tell me what you told me. No? Monsters don't tell stories. People tell stories. And you may have done some monstrous things, but you're still a person. Billy looked at me with the same expression I saw on an owl in one of those nature documentaries. The moment before, he lunges at some unsuspecting chipmunk. You don't know a lot about monsters, he said. Not a lot, but I know a thing or two about stories. He twisted his mouth in another grimace, like a different gargoyle in a different tower. He sniffed like he was picking up a strange scent from somewhere in the bus. You got a spirit protecting you, he said. A powerful spirit's watching right over you. I can feel it. He looked up, as if he could see the spirit hovering above me. All I could see was the ceiling of the motor coach, blue plastic and some formica-like pattern. 
Billy relaxed a little, took a deep breath, pressed himself back against his seat. It feels better, he said, talking like this. Sometimes I just want to talk and talk. Let everything out. He put his left hand over my forearm, though it still managed to feel like a concrete manacle. You wouldn't happen to have a few spare bucks, would you? I spend everything to get on this bus. Just need a little to get me something to eat. No, you don't, I said, not merely surprising myself, but nearly out and out scaring myself to death. Huh? The back of Billy's seat moaned as he leaned forward again. You don't really need the money, do you? Billy laughed, but the laugh stopped short. You saying I'm a liar? I'm not saying you're a liar, but I think I know why you're asking me for money. He rocked in his seat, my book pressed between his powerful hands. Just a few bucks. What's it hurt to give me a few bucks? You're asking me for money so you can go back to thinking of me as another Mark. I thought you were my friend. His voice was so low it could have been coming from under the bus. My friends call me Kath. You're crazy, he said. I nodded. I must be. What the hell do you want? You're the one who wants something. He shifted his weight away from me, against the wall of the bus. I imagined that if he shifted any more, the bus might tip over. I looked over to the other side and could just make out through the fogged-up, snow-spattered windows some of the buildings of the old orchard shopping center. I thought, greyhounds from Milwaukee often make a stop in Skokie at the old Swift station at the end of the CTA line. I could possibly tell the driver I wanted to get off there, have him get my suitcase, and take the train into the loop and transfer over to the O'Hare line. I checked my watch. Too late. My brother and sister-in-law lived in Chicago. I could call them, stay the night there, and fly out in the morning, reschedule the interview. So the whole trip was for naught. Bad judgment. Fiasco from start to finish. The traffic slowed to a near standstill. Apparently some cars had piled up in the right lane. We were between the old orchard and Dempster exits all the traffic merging into one lane. I opened up my purse, pulled a 20 from my wallet, and tapped on Billy Elkrider's wrist. It was like tapping on a tree trunk. What? He sounded morose, but looking at the money seemed to raise his mood. Here. I was being crabby. I thought I needed the cab fare, but it doesn't look like I'm going anywhere. He didn't take the money right away, like he was going to try for the prideful refusal. It was a new bill, fresh from the cash machine. When he finally pulled it from my hand... He took it between thumb and index, folded it neatly with one flick of the thumb, and folded it again, two crisp moves, like a pro, and stuffed it into the pocket of his Frankenstein jacket. The bus inched along to the Dempster exit before it came to a halt. Up ahead, we could just make out the flashing lights of emergency vehicles, and the brake lights of a hundred vehicles before them. Billy opened my copy of Pierre again, and read a passage aloud very slowly halting at unfamiliar words and mangling the syntax by putting the stress in the wrong places. That sundown, Pierre stood solitary in a low dungeon of the city prison. The cumbersome stone ceiling almost rested on his brow, so that the long tiers of massive cell galleries above seemed partly piled on him. He slapped the book shut. Do you think I'd like this? You know, like I'd get anything out of it? I don't know, I said. I thought of Pierre. It's kind of a serious parody, and it helps to know what Melville is parodying to make any sense of it, at least for the first hundred pages. 
And from there, it's all misanthropy and despair. Books can't teach you anything. That's right. Pierre followed my 20 into his jacket pocket. Where are you headed for, anyway? California. Santa Monica. I could take you places. You do okay in Vegas. You know that? Mexico. Miami. You're a classy chick. The classy ones always do all right. Make a ton of money. Not this one. Well, maybe you know what you're doing. I shook my head. I'm learning as I go along. The bus was moving, slowly, but moving. The procession of brake lights brought us up to the emergency vehicles. With Billy's silence, the other passengers started to mumble, wiped the condensation from the windows, twisted their necks to look at what was causing all the commotion. State police, ambulances, a Department of Transportation van. All the lights from the vehicles flickered like multicolored lightning. Hey, Billy pointed to the window. Look at those two cars mangled up. Wonder how fast they were going. He pushed back in his seat, as much as he could, to let me see. I leaned over a little, not really wanting to invest myself in someone else's tragedy. But Billy placed his left hand between my shoulder blades and pressed me closer to the window. Firmly, until I was practically in his lap. And that's when he clipped me. It was a neat, swift gesture, almost invisible. If you were just glancing over at us, it must have looked like an involuntary twinge, a spasm, or the swift jerk of an emphatic gesture. Must have, because I couldn't tell you. I was out. It felt a little like having the cable TV cut out on you, or having a minute or two snipped from a movie reel. The next thing I saw was the ceiling of the bus, the awful blue pattern, and then Billy's face, smiling down at me, like a genius, or an idiot, or a sociopath. I don't know if it was the result of the clip, or fear, or some other force working upon me, but I couldn't move. I don't know how I kept my eyes open, or kept breathing. I thought for a moment I was paralyzed, that Billy had missed the mark, or that I'd known what was coming and tensed up. Billy held a bottle rim to my lips. It was cheap bourbon from a half pint. I tried to cough it out, but he kept pouring and muttered, No matter. Just so you smell like a drunk. You better swallow some anyway. I did, finally, and the bourbon dropped down into me like a rock dropped from the top of a well. It felt warm, radiating heat in the pit of my stomach. Against my will, I relaxed. Against my will, I watched him as he pulled something else from his pocket. A square, glass bottle, very tiny, like something made to fit into an inkwell, and, like an inkwell, filled with something black. From somewhere near I heard a child's voice. Mama, that man's making her drink. Followed by a mother's voice. Shh! Don't you look there, child. You're on a bus. You don't look nowhere. Billy had his arm around me, and I felt like I was resting in a tree. Comfortable and precarious, cradled by a strong branch, but if you fell asleep, you might slip out and break your neck. He uncorked the tiny bottle, opened my mouth with just a twitch of his finger, and let a drop fall between my lips. That's all it takes, baby. One drop. His voice was close, not just in my ear, but inside me. Sounded like he was in my head, having a look-see, walking around. The stuff from the tiny bottle tasted awful, but I couldn't gag. I felt light, insubstantial, like a bit of feather that's come loose from a down vest floating on the still air, until a big hand comes around and grabs it. For a moment I remembered myself sitting in the second grade class of the St. Agnes School, 
in my ugly jumper, my greasy hair tied back in a ponytail, hearing Sister Marie Alonzo reading from Matthew, Not my will, but thine be done. Not yours, said Billy, still in my head. Not his, either. He smiled, slipped my glasses down to the tip of my nose, and closed my eyelids like a man who once washed corpses for an undertaker. Like someone who could casually drop a jukebox on a man's hand, or abandon his helpless girlfriend in a room full of drunken longshoremen. Hold on, he said in a voice that conveyed full well that there were no choices beyond this one and oblivion. I didn't so much open my eyes as the lids just slipped up like a window shade. Before, I was aware of a rushing noise, like great engines and a pressure plugging up my ears. I was on a jet, a 757 it looked like, in the middle seat of a row to the right of the aisle. My head ached, my chin was numb, my neck was stiff, and I felt like I'd been sleeping in my clothes for about a week. My purse and portfolio were in my lap, with my scarf. My winter coat was draped over my shoulders. The passengers to either side of me had moved as far as possible in their tiny seats away from me. I sat up slowly. My head hurt too much to move any faster. On my left was a young man reading a bestseller. On my right was a woman with short, gray hair, the airline magazine in her hands, but staring out the window as if she'd rather be doing anything but staring out the window. I took my chance with the gentleman. Excuse me, but I'm about to ask a very stupid question. We're heading for LAX, aren't we? Without looking up from the book, he nodded. Were you here when I got on? He nodded. Was there anyone with me? He shook his head. I stood up. The man shifted his legs to clear the way as if I might be heading for the bathroom. But all I did was look to all the seats behind me and in front of me for a gargantua stuffed into an impossibly tiny airline seat. Of course, he wasn't there. After all, he would have needed a ticket. Money. A reason to go to California. Money. I checked my purse. The cash was gone, but everything else, including my credit cards, remained. I had no memory of getting off the bus, heading for the airport, getting on the jet. But I was here. And if I told anyone what had happened, they would smell the bourbon on me and presume the rest. You were with someone, said the gray-haired woman looking at her magazine. If it was you, a big man, like a mountain, him, I remember. She turned in my direction briefly, but without meeting my gaze. In the departure area, she said, where the cabs let you off. He set you on the curb while the driver took your luggage out. Then he got back into the cab with the other woman. Other woman? She nodded. I couldn't see her. She had red hair. That's all I could see. From then, she read her magazine as if it were a penance, not looking up again. For the rest of the flight, I sat trying to decide what, if any part of that day, had been delusion. It occurred to me that nothing was really delusional to the person experiencing it. Billy got me on the flight. I don't know how, and I don't know why. Maybe because I acknowledged him on that bus. Maybe because of that spirit watching over me. Whatever it was, or is... I made it to the airport and to the hotel. I attended the conference, had my interview, took a trip down to where the house I was born in should have stood had it not been torn down for a block of condos in a strip mall. I knew from the interview that I wouldn't get the job, but by then I'd soured upon the teaching position anyway. By the time you walk out to the end of Santa Monica Pier and look out to sea, mourning the loss of your birthplace, 
The word tenure has no more luster. I just wanted to go home. We make regrettable decisions. In one way, there really aren't any other kinds. And if you survive, it may be that there are no decisions, only a series of inevitable maneuvers through the ambiguities. Which reminds me, I never got that copy of Pierre back either. Billy Elkrider, wherever he is now, may still be trying to read it. Not that he needs to. Books can't teach you anything anyway. Thanks for that, Rich. I love this story. It was first published in the anthology Hell in the Heartland, edited by Roger Trexler and published by Annihilation Press. My story, Little Girl Down the Way, also found a home in that book. I love the story because, first of all, it is extraordinarily well-written, something you always expect in one of Rich's stories, and because it's set on a bus. I love bus tales, the transport of last resort, as a character in tonight's story calls the interstate bus. There's always something sad and desperate about being on a bus for a long haul. You're there because, well, all else has failed. You're crammed in with 80 or so others and have to share far too much intimacy Two of my favorite stories of my own, The Last Scoot at Skidoo's Tap and Rat Time in the Hall of Pain, are enveloped by bus travel. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you will listen to it again. It has more to say than is perhaps first evident. So enjoy. More about Richard. He is married to Chicago poet Pamela Miller Schwedick. Mr. Schwedick's poem, Rich and Pam Go to Fermi Lab and Later See a Dead Man, was nominated for a Risling Award. And if you didn't catch it on the Strange Horizons website, you can read it in the 2004 Risling Anthology, available from the Science Fiction Poetry Association. A few years back, Rich won a Nebula Award for his novella Bronte's Egg. He's also been nominated for the Hugo the Sturgeon, and, as said, the Risling Awards. His work has been published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Amazing, Space and Time, Strange Horizons, and anthologies like Nebula Award Showcase 2004, Year's Best SF, Tales from the Red Lion, Visual Journeys, the aforementioned Hell in the Heartland, and various other places in print and online. Since 1991, he's taught short story writing at Oakton Community College, and since 2009 has taught the science fiction writing workshop, regular and advanced levels, for Columbia College here in Chicago. He's also moderated writing workshops at Worldcons, Wiscons, Windycons, and ran the Worldcon writing workshop at ShyCon 2000 and Torcon 3. Rich also did a 33-year stretch in the newspaper business, but says we should not hold that against him. When he's not teaching, he's at work on new fiction now. Seriously, he is. 
I've posted his website on the Tales to Terrify page. Go there, but according to him, it needs some serious updating. He hopes to have a blog up and running before long. And thanks again, Rich. And thank you, Antoinette Bergen, for reading The Ambiguities. Of herself, Antoinette says she is twisted and dark, sarcastic and pessimistic, weird, demented, all of which combine to make a person absolutely adorable. She is the author of Bedtime Stories for Children You Hate and has been known to mail packages of lime jello to people she deems worthy. She can be found on Twitter as at Nettie underscore Bergen and probably won't harm you if you follow her. And that... No. No, that will not quite be that. There is one more piece of business to get through before you are upstanding, before you wrap yourselves for home. As of tonight, Friday, December 27, you have just four days to get us to the stretch goal David Bradshaw has set, at which time he will write and record a special song for us here in the nook at Tales to Terrify. David's been running a Kickstarter campaign to support the packaging and reproduction of his second CD, Songs from the Former County. The album features original tunes and amazing guest artists. So go to the website I've posted on the Tales to Terrify homepage and on our Facebook page and give so that we may all be immortalized in melody. I'll give you a moment to consider your walk home and let one of David's tunes play us out. This is something we're all going to have to face in a few days. Yes, yes it is. Is left a wreck within, hollowed out and falling. I'll shore it up a short time more. Mm -hmm. I banish devious engine dust. I'll shake the whole house down if I must. I'll sweep the welcome big cross the floor. If you'd only come docking. On my set, never rise. Not hot steams from these old eyes, and lifetimes work is just a chore. Never mind the work you've done, there's always more. I banish deepest in gin dust. I'll shake the whole house down if I must. I'll sweep a well complete across the floor. And callers come with them bring 
Pleasant dreams. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. <laughs>